the weekly show with David J. Maloney. This week, David talks to Glenn Phillips, lead singer of Toad the Wet Sprocket. And now, here's your host, David J. Maloney. Our featured guest tonight was a contributor to what many consider to be the sound of the 90s. His band, Toad the Wet Sprocket, was discovered while he was still in high school, and they went on to make multiple platinum and gold records with hits like All I Want, Fall Down, Walk on the Ocean, and Good Intentions from the Friends soundtrack. Uh, all the while, shirking the normal trappings of fame and whilst keeping their own character and integrity. Uh, here to chat about his work, the band Toad the Wet Sprocket, their current tour, and as much wisdom as we can glean from him is Toad's lead singer, Glenn Phillips. Glenn, welcome to the show. How do you do? Happy to be here. I, I know music was part of your life from some of the earliest stages. Was music a big part of your home life growing up? Uh, not a huge one. My mom is singularly non-musical and my father was kind of he could he could do a really bad version of Malagueño he had an old Goya like Spanish guitar but then you know dun 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 that's all he could do uh so they were both hard sciences uh he was physics and she was organic chem and so um I I think my brother and I skipped a generation and we're both uh, music nerds. So, when, when did you first pick up a guitar? Uh, sixth grade, I think I took. I, I took lessons. I was always more interested in writing than playing. Uh, so I didn't apply myself um, as a guitarist very hard. And also I'm left-handed and started playing right-handed. So it, the plumbing wasn't there for me to be very good. So I concentrated on writing pretty early. When, when did you first start writing? Uh, probably like seventh grade. Do you still have like your first song written somewhere and periodically look back and go, oh, wow. I wish I could find it. I was more of a theater nerd back then. I, I, I was really oriented towards theater pretty much up until Toad got signed. And so uh, I had written, I think my first song was like an eight. I'd been listening to a lot of Rush. So I was into things like hemispheres and I met a girl at, I went to Interlock and Arts Camp in Michigan. And so uh, I, I wrote this like eight minute epic uh, about Janet from Syracuse uh, that I can't remember any of, but I'm sure it's, a, it's an embarrassing patchwork. <laughs> so, so I was going to ask you what genres and artists you were listening to at that time, but, and it's, and it's interesting because Rush is, is, was one of yours. Rush was likewise one of mine. And what we may talk about that a little bit later on. Um, now you started with Toad, I want to say what, at 15. And then like two years later, had a record deal. When you look back at that time in your life, what kind of stands out to you the most? Uh, three years. I mean, we started uh, when I was 14 or 15, I started playing with Todd. Uh, I was a freshman at San Marcos High and we were in uh, Oklahoma and our town together. So we were all in theater and, and choir. Um, Dean, our bass player, sang the farmer and the cowman should be friends. So like, <laughs> theater nerds. And so, I mean, we started then and yeah, got signed when I was 18. So, um, and I got out of high school at 16 and was going to the city college in town. You know, it was a strange experience. Like it was our first band. We made an album thinking it would, you know, just kind of come out in town. We had a, a cassette we were selling at the local record stores and we, um, 
you know, we were not super ambitious. I was planning on going away to San Francisco State and studying. I, de I had decided I wanted to be a high school teacher and do like arts and social sciences at a high school level because that seemed to me to be um, suitable for my sensitive soul because I, I knew that hustling was not going to be something I, I had the spine for. Uh, and, and later experience would, would prove it right. I mean, you were talking about us being outside the mainstream and I think a large part of the reason for that was, uh, you know, kind of an extreme case of imposter syndrome. Uh, <laughs> and so, uh, we were, you know, I, I always felt like people were going to figure out that I wasn't who they thought I was and send me packing. Um, but I, I also knew that going in. So, um, yeah, it was, a, it was, it was strange, but I didn't really know anything else. I mean, when that happens when you're 18 and, you know, uh, we hadn't even sent out demos. There was this guy, Nick Turzo, who ended up being an A&R guy, uh, at, at Columbia, but he was working at ASCAP and he found our original tape, uh, and he started dubbing off cassette copies and sending them to record companies. So we hadn't even... We didn't think we were ready for a record deal and he started sending tapes off and we'd never even met him. And then the next thing we knew we were meeting with all these labels. And, um, so it was pretty unexpected whirlwind. Um, so it wasn't like you guys were, I mean, I, I was looking back and going, how could they be prepared at all at, at, you know, basically as essentially just out of high school for what would, what would be to come, um, for our viewers who are unfamiliar with the origin of the band's name, Toad the Wet Sprocket comes from a Monty Python skit. Can you tell us the story behind that? And, and I'm also curious, were there any other names in contention that you guys could have been? I mean, we didn't have any good names and we wanted a really cool name, um, but we had a gig. And uh, it was Dean, the bass player. Uh, you know, and it's a deep cut for Monty Python, right? It's a yeah. rock notes from the contractual obligation album. So it wasn't even on the TV shows. Uh, and it was, uh, it was, uh, Rex, Rex Stardust lead electric triangle for Toad the Wet Sprocket had to have an elbow removed following their recent worldwide tour of Finland. Uh, anyway, so it was, it was a series of like terrible band names, like poached herring and a white wine sauce was one of the band names. Luckily we didn't choose that, but, uh, it was, it was just ridiculous. And we thought it would be hilarious to see it in print. And we were going to come up with the coolest band name ever. And then a year passed and we still hadn't thought of a cool name. So, uh, so there we were. Um, the weirdest part of it all is that there's actually another band called Toad the Wet Sprocket that's like a, a hard rock blues band from Northern England who apparently got back together during the pandemic. So now we may have to go like Toad the Wet Sprocket UK, Toad the Wet Sprocket US, which is about as ridiculous as a thing is, has ever happened. I'm, I'm pretty sure you've heard the famous quote from Eric Idle on that Monty Python sketch, right? Where, and I'm going to quote for our audience. I once wrote a sketch about rock musicians. I was trying to think of a name that would be so silly, nobody would ever use it or dream it could ever be used. So I wrote the words Toad the Wet Sprocket. A few years later, I'm driving along the freeway in LA and a song comes on the radio and DJ says, that was by Toad the Wet Sprocket. And I nearly drove off the freeway. And, and that quote got me thinking, have you all connected in any way with any of the members of Monty Python I've met a few times uh, because he's a local and we sent Eric Idle a gold record. He he called us at some point and, and 
uh, we said thanks for the name, and he said, "Yeah, it's it's great. Enjoy it. I won't sue you if you ever get a uh, if you ever get a gold record. Send me one, and and there will be no legal proceedings." And so that's hilarious. We eventually got a gold record, and we sent it to him. That's so, that's uh, fantastic. That is so superb. I want to ask you about Toad's first album, Bread and Circus. I mean, you guys were also young, but also seemingly fairly experienced musicians at that time. What do you remember the most about the creation of that album? Well, Bread and Circus, we were, I mean, we were a new band. And, and I think the thing about learning how to play together is you end up developing styles that are, you know, your own, meaning um, we were, it's like attention, you learn to lean on each other's strengths and weaknesses, right? And so we were all working it out as a unit. So we sound like a band because we had no idea what we were doing. And, but we did that together. I mean, and, you know, a cooler example of that would be like the Pixies, you know, where I think they just heard strange time signature. Like they didn't know what they were doing at the beginning. And they really learned by the time of Bossa Nova, you can tell it's like, they're not just like, you know, winging it. <laughs> um, and maybe, maybe they knew more than I thought they did, but, uh, and I think we had a similar thing. So we said, we didn't, we weren't really good, but we were a band, uh, Dean of any of us, the bass player is the most educated musician. He actually can, you know, sit at a piano and play. Yeah. He started a piano. He's, he's self-taught bass, correct? Yeah, but he's also a musical family. So it's like, I think for him really um, in the blood, the lineage and grew up with piano lessons, he, he learned, you know, he learned more properly than any of us. Um, but we, you know, we've been playing around town. And I think part of the thing with us is where most bands would have to learn a ton of covers. Um, we actually on occasion we'd have a, a show where it was a party or something and we go like, Oh man, we, we need to learn party songs. We need to learn the songs that people know. Um, because the main place we played in town is this place called Pat's grass shack. And, uh, uh, Jerry who ran the place basically didn't believe in ASCAP or BMI, like, um, who are the performance rights associations, right? So anytime you play in a club, if you play a cover, yep. they're supposed to be paying money to the licensing organizations that pay for that song. This guy didn't believe in that. And so uh, you were, it was, it wasn't that he was like an advocate for original local music. It was just that he was cheap bastard. And so you had to play all originals. If you started playing happy birthday, he would literally like pull the plug on the stage. And so so we started playing there and so we had to have a full set of original material and then we kept writing because you didn't want to play the same songs every week and so that place turned us into writers and uh, turned us into an originals band and so uh we were writing ferociously we had to write in a way that most young bands don't like most young bands are fitting in their cover songs and we were all originals. And so um, he did us a great service by that. And so, I mean, we were writing and then basically there was a guy in a local band, Brad Knack, and he wanted a backup band uh, for a couple songs and he'd heard us playing. And he's like, hey, if you record two songs of mine, then you can record two of yours. And we're like, great. So we did two songs of his, we recorded two of our own and we just did them live in the studio. And we were like, that's easy. Hey, if we do eight more, it's a record. And so we did eight more. So our first album was like, I think it was 48 hours to record and mix. And it was $600. 
And so Bread and Circus was just, wow. it was like super quick, super easy. We just recorded it live. To, I think the only overdubs were like a saxophone and uh, harmony vocals and everything else was just played live. So coming off the back of that record that you guys self-funded for, for the $600, is it true the band was then offered like a million dollars back then by MGM to sign for them? And if so, how did you then kids muster the discipline to turn that down? Because back in that day, yeah, that's even more than what that would be now. Well, um, I think it was MCA. Um and I forget if it was a million or half a million. It might have been a million. I mean, once the bidding wars started, it got there. Um, but we'd recorded two records. So right when we got signed, we were finishing up a second record, which cost a whopping $6,000 to do. And we did the same way. We just went in and recorded it live and live lead vocals, which is why they're so horrifically out of tune. Um, and so, you know, we just, you know, went in and did it live again and i think there were somewhere between eight and 12 seriously interested labels and it's it, part of the thing is like it's once one is interested if it's the right person at that label then they're all interested and we were young we were in santa barbara so it was easy for people to drive from los angeles and have a night at the biltmore and that was yep. back in the days when they all had their expense accounts and, <laughs> and we're happy to use them so um the biltmore probably honestly got us a lot probably is as anything as as a, <laughs> in us getting a record deal and you're uh, talking about the second so, go ahead i'm sorry i don't i want to hear the rest well of the second record we finished both and while we were close to finishing nick terzo the guy at ascap um the guy we had a guy named Marvin Etzioni produced the second album. Marvin's manager was Ron Sabule, who worked at ASCAP. Nick uh, was like 21 or something, and he was working at ASCAP. Ron gave him a copy of our first record. He sent him out. So it was like, just as we were finishing the second album, it came out. And we were young, and we had, uh, you know, we weren't like a punk rock band, but we had a punk rock ethos. And um, our attitude was that we didn't really need a record company. We didn't want to have hits. I was about to go off to college. Like we got signed. Um, I was supposed to be going to San Francisco State and go off and do. We were we were all going to go to different towns. Um, I think Todd really wanted the band to stay together and do it, and the rest of us just figured ah, that's the thing we did. And even getting signed, I think the attitude was like, we'll get signed, we'll be there two years, they'll drop us, everyone gets dropped. And, you know, it's like, but it'll be a fun story. And 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 so, and our manager, Chris Blake, I think was also really protecting us. And there were, you know, Geffen was talking to us and they were like, great, take the best songs from these first two albums, we'll re-record them at a real studio, make a real record. And we're like, nope, those are real records. We, we, we want to do those and we're already working on songs for the third record and we want to put these out to our colleges. You know, we just, we didn't, we weren't in it for the money. And, um, you know, part of that is I think a punk rock ethos and is also probably coming from Santa Barbara and feeling like, you know, we were going to be okay, right? It's that middle-class comfort where you're going to, you know, you'll be able to get a job, get a college education. You know, it's like, it wasn't like, 
I think there's a fire that happens when you have to make it through music or you have to make it through sports. Like you look at, uh, you know, hip hop and R and B and like country music and bluegrass. And, you know, if you came from poverty uh, and you came from nothing, you had to fight and you had to be the best. And, you know, the, and, and like people from that background, I think there, there's like a need to make it work. And my thought was like, I, I already knew at 15 that I didn't want to sell myself. I didn't want to be famous. I didn't need to be famous. I wanted to be a teacher, wanted to get a pension. I wanted to not hustle. I wanted to not compete. I wanted to not be held up for constant public scrutiny. Like, and, and so it was more, it afforded us this attitude. Uh, and, and to a degree that attitude kept us with this indie attitude within the record company. You know, when we signed with Columbia, we took, you know, our, our advance for the Fear album was probably a tenth of what MCA was offering us. And we took a little licensing fee for the first two albums. But we had this attitude. It's like, if we take your money, then we got to do what you say. And, and so we're not going to take your money. We're going to earn what we make if we make anything. And we're going to make the best records we possibly can. And we don't care if we have a hit. I mean, we were listening to, you know, Dinosaur Jr. and Dump Truck and Squirrel Bait and Husker Du and The Replacements. And we didn't give a fuck. Like we, the bands we loved were not trying to have hits. And the irony of Toad's career is that when we had a hit, we became a punchline for jokes about how the the majors were destroying indie music, right? <laughs> and we were one of the first bands to kind of cross that threshold when right at that time in the, in the early nineties, when, uh, you know, radio was deregulated, when the formats were all over the place where indie music was starting to cross over and make it big. And, you know, once again, we just had this, attitude that at the one hand i think helped us and saved us on the other hand the disease of bands in the 90s was to be on major labels and act like you weren't on an indie label so you think of bands like counting crows or pearl jam who refused to sing their singles live or would disfigure their singles so they were unrecognizable live right uh, you know, thinking of Adam and how, you know, Mr. Jones and me, he would like <laughs> never sing the melody, like, and, and Pearl Jam, like wouldn't sing alive. Right. And like, so we were all on major labels, but we were all acting like we were too cool for school and we didn't want any success. And, and so there was a lot of self-sabotage in that. And I think if a band wasn't also really crystal clear on who they were, what their image was. And like, I think we thought REM didn't have an image uh, because it just felt like, no, this, we roll out of bed. We look this way. We're just cool. Call it. And we're like, we can do the same, but we just were schlubs. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, they were art forward as people, I think. And we were nerds. And, and so if you don't 
pay attention to those things and think they might be important, then people fill in the gaps for you and they don't ever do it flatteringly. <laughs> people talk about the band's maturing sound then between Bread and Circus and the next album, Pale. That was really because you actually already had Pale done, but then you went back in and re-recorded it? Or was there a certain amount no, of maturity they were done. that changed in between the albums? Nothing changed. Our entire thing, we didn't have artwork for it, but it was mixed. Um, so our whole thing, those two records, they were just recorded. One was in a track tome, one was in a big open room. So it, it sounds airier. I mean, the big change was when we went in and we did, uh, when we did, uh, fear, we wanted to make a big album. Like I was in love, you know, as much as I like the indie kind of post-punk bands, I also loved Cocteau Twins, Peter Gabriel, Talk Talk, Tears for Fears, Thomas Dolby. I loved like big productions and these, you know, expansive records. And so um, when we went in and we're doing uh, Fear, uh, you know, even the producer we worked with, you know, he'd, you know, Gavin McKillop had produced bands like Shriek Back and The Church and The Chills. And, you know, um, I was a huge XTC fan. And, you know, it was a, you know, and I know Skylarking is more of a Todd Rundgren album than a, an XTC album in a certain way uh but it's you know you know they made such brilliant records and uh i grew up my brother you know he works for korg usa he designs synthesizers and he's you know and and so i grew up with all his influences as well and um you know, we love, you know, Trevor Horn productions, the Yes albums and, and the Buggles. And, you know, it's like, uh, so we wanted to make a, a big record that was like songs from the big chair or something, you know? And, and so uh, Fear was the big departure where, you know, it was 48 tracks back when it was like two reel to reels and, you know, giant SSL console. And, you know, we threw in, every idea we could think of. And it was an amazing experience to make that. Record. When, when you guys were recording fear, was there a feeling at, at all within the band? Oh yeah, this is special. This is going to blow up. No, I mean, we actually still had, you know, the funny thing about fear is like, uh, I think we all liked walk on the ocean. Uh, we didn't put good intentions on that record because it was too pop. We almost didn't put All I Want on that record because it was too pop. And we were very much in this, like, no, we're an indie band, but we're like, you know, we're making a big record, but we were we were thinking closer to Tears for Fears or Talk Talk, right? <laughs> um, and so, you know, and All I Want, you know, even as a single, that happened nine months into the record. It wasn't you know, everybody at the record company, you know, they all had 2020 hindsight and it was a hit from the first time they saw it after it was a hit, but it took them <laughs> nine months to get there. Um, so, I mean, it, it, you know, it was as a recording process, we weren't thinking in terms of hits and we actually even, we lucked out with our, our A&R guys, you know, for that, we still had um, Ron Oberman and Ron was, he was an album guy. And, you know, for the next album, Dulcinea, where we went back and we're like, okay, we want to make something that's that where we, we can do everything live. 
that it's like we wanted to make a record that was how we sounded live again but we were a better bigger live band we rocked more and we wanted to really bring that across um but we had chuck plotkin who you know produced dylan and and uh springsteen as our a and r guy and chuck was just like literally said my job is to protect you from the radio people and you make the record you want to make and we came in and listened to the records and remember he's like oh it's a wild stew like you could tell a lot of stories like how do you think about sequencing because you're going to take people on a journey and you really want to think about like what's the emotional journey the the meta you know people weren't using the word meta but you know what's like the larger narrative that you're trying to tell with this record and so we lucked out like when we got to our last record and i think david khan was our a and r guy he just sat there and he was like oh, what? no it wasn't david khan it was somebody else but he I, he just sat there and he's like what do you think the single is <laughs> like that was it and it's like oh this is what people talk about with a and r guys so we'd had the best experience possible we had total creative control and we had people who wanted great records and they didn't give a damn about singles so we wanted to make a great record because we figured we were going to get dropped still. <laughs> you know, we had so all this it. time. You're like just figuring this is going to be the each each record is like this is probably going to be the last hurrah. Um, no, I don't think honestly with Dulcinea, we weren't thinking that. With oh, Dulcinea, I, we'd we'd gone, we had a platinum record. We're like, I guess we're doing this. Like at that point, we thought we were pros, but we were still trying to make great records. Um and we were still of that 90s mindset that like, you know, we did all the radio work. We worked hard uh, in promotion, but at the same time, we didn't give a shit. We're like, we're a real band, you know, we're, we're, a, we're a career band. And, and, you know, in hindsight, probably thinking more about singles and career longevity. And, you know, if I could, if I could mentor my, my younger self, I would have a lot to say about gratitude, about being smart, about your attitude, uh, about putting more money. I, I would have a lot of advice for myself. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned Dulcinea, and I'm, I'm going to have a, a fan gushing moment for a second here. Um, Dulcinea is honestly one of my five desert island albums. Um, and that's true. It's right. It's right there for me with Joni Mitchell's Court and Spark, Blood, Sweat and Tears, Child is Fire of the Man, Howard Jones's Human Lib and Rush's 2112, which <laughs> you mentioned Rush earlier. In fact, I even named my boat Dulcinea after that album. Nice. Yes. And so today, as we record this interview, it's been exactly 28 years and a day mm -hmm. since that album was released. Now you've said, I think you've said before that Dulcinea maybe might be your favorite Toad album as well. What, what do you think made that one yeah. so special to you? I think we'd matured. I'd matured as a lyricist. Uh, I, I feel like I wasn't getting away with things that sounded vaguely poetic, but I didn't know what they mean anymore. <laughs> uh, so there was more intent behind it. Um, I think the attitude of, of reducing songs to what we could do live and making a, like, I, I can go into that overproduction thing. I mean, I've just finished a solo album that, that like I, I had so much fun with, I used all the tracks. I mean, and it's a ton of fun to do that. Um, but there's something about 
great rock arranging, which is just like, it's, you know, I feel like there's no fluff arrangementally on that. Like we were playing, we were a strong touring band. We arranged things really tightly. So it's the biggest sounding record, even though it has the less track, the least tracks, right? Well, and it's solid throughout. I don't think there's, there's, in my opinion, there's not a bad song on the album. I think the songs were, the songs were solid. The writing was, I think, categorically better. Uh, and we knew what we were as a band. We knew what we were trying to say. And we were at our, at our peak. I think we were, um, during that record more than any other record, I also think there was, we were playing as a team and we were intent on doing something uh, great together. And I think it's really hard to do something great together if you're in fighting. Uh, and by the time of Coil, I, I think our morale was a lot lower and uh, that we were a little overtaken by internal tor turmoil. Um, and I also feel, I mean, you know, I love the last record we did just because those songs mean something to me now in a way that songs I wrote when I was in my early 20s don't resonate. Uh, what I'm glad about is how few of the songs from back then make me wince now, <laughs> you know, meaning, meaning that I've heard bands who are now in their fifties or sixties. And if you're writing songs about, Hey, little girl, after the show, let's go get busy. Like there's stuff that just gets creepy or uh, falls flat at a point. Um, and I feel like, you know, I was, a I don't know if maudlin's the word, but I was, you know, dark and deep and depressed and, and, you know, thinking about heavy things. And, and it's like, okay, I'm proud of the things I was thinking about. I feel like I was asking questions that were worth, you know, worth asking. And I'm not, I'm not embarrassed about most of the subject matter as an adult. Well, and, and um, that kind of brings up a, a song, one of my favorite songs, probably my favorite song on the album is Fly From Heaven. And, and my interpretation of that was that it was written from the perspective of James, brother of Jesus. And I'm curious if that's correct. And if the story behind writing that song was personal in some way. Um, that song came out of a, a fascination with early Christianity. So I grew up in a, you know, a very California way. It was, um, you know, I had a bar mitzvah and a reform congregation, but my dad, took me to Zen meditation courses and gave me the Tao Te Ching and, uh, you know, books by Idris Shah on Sufism. And, you know, so I had this like Eastern education from my father and, uh, you know, and a very, um, you know, in my congregation, um, it was an ethical background through Judaism, but not necessarily a deep spiritual background. You know, I remember asking the rabbi when I was really young, like, I don't believe in any of this. I don't believe in God. Like, should I be here? And he's like, you don't have to believe in God to be Jewish. It's like, it's about, you know, it's about, <laughs> I sum it up as ethics and Holocaust guilt at that time. <laughs> like, oh, it was, it's about, no, but it was about ethics and a cultural identity right? It's about doing the right thing. It's about understanding that history is bigger than you. And it's about being open-minded. And, and so I kind of envied my friends who were raised with Christianity because they were actually raised in this very magical world um, where there was a heaven and a hell and God and demons and this, you know, fight between good and evil. And, 
I read so much, you know, sci-fi and fantasy as a kid, and they were like living in a reality that included those those kind of epic celestial battles, right? And so um, I was really fascinated with it. And as as time went by, I found that my friends who were I would ask a lot of questions of my Christian friends and they, interestingly, some, most of them hadn't asked a lot of big questions. It's more, it's what they grew up with. And that was the fabric of reality. So I was really curious about early Christianity and who Jesus was and how early Christianity turned into a Jewish movement to the, you know, it's like, what, what happened in there? And so... I started reading, you know, early gospels. And then I found Eileen Pagels, uh, who's a Gnostic scholar, early Christianity scholar. She wrote the Gnostic gospels and uh, the history of, I think it's the history of Satan and Adam, Eve and the serpent. And so started reading these kind of academic books on, um, on early Christianity. Uh, and she's an interesting person to read because there are a lot of books on Christian history that are, um, more that are kind of people who came out of the church, but are no longer in the church. So they have a Christian perspective, but a, a non-believers perspective. And she had this really interesting uh, academic perspective as a, a deep academic who was also a person of faith. And they, you know, there's a different angle to how uh, they'll write about those subjects. So I was reading, I was really fascinated with Apocrypha and uh you know the dead sea scrolls and like what are the things that were cut out of the official bible and why were they cut out and so anyway early christianity was like just that was you know instead of <laughs> i didn't go to college but i read a lot uh before there was the internet and well i wondered about that <laughs> i know it was something i always kind of if i had ever had the opportunity to, to speak with you i always was always something i always wanted to ask because when you listen to songs like fly from heaven begin reincarnation song and a song i'm going to mention later on drive by you know when when you know you listen to the songs it always made me wonder how or if concepts or faith or religion had influenced your work or was it based upon your own independent study of those things because i knew your background yeah. you know i knew you were raised initially jewish and then i knew there was this kind of buddhist aspect of things and i was like this is kind of interesting because he comes from this background but yet he has these other songs that touch upon you know, faith or religion. And I always kind of wondered about that and where that, where that came from. Yeah. It, it fascinates me. It's an endless subject, right? Even, and even the subject, you know, in, in fly from heaven, yeah, it's from James point of view and it's, you know, my timelines are probably off on it, but it's also thinking about that. It's this religion of Paul more than it's a religion of Jesus in certain ways. And there's, you know, you know, breakaways from Catholicism that have been, I think people trying to take it back a little from Paul, right? Um, who had his own agendas. And, uh, you know, that, that, so this idea of how do you take someone who's, you know, kind of a mortal, a mortal uh, preacher and uh, someone who's a rabbi and someone who's, um, you know, teaching a kind of radical revolutionary doctrine and how does that morph into what Christianity became, which is this much more mechanistic uh, model of salvation, right? And uh, it, it's, that shift is really fascinating to me. And, and so, um, 
and that, that I feel like in the middle of all that, like, you know, and still a question for me with, you know, especially American evangelicalism, you know, like it, you're, it's a, a set of values that is, looks to me objectively, like being fairly far removed from the original material. Like somebody who was talking about non-dualism, about taking in the broken and not shaming them, right? Taking in those who are different from you, challenging yourself to love more and love, uh, you know, greater visiting prisoners, taking care of the poor, feeding the poor. Like that's what the guy talked about. <laughs> and he talked about a, a fairly radical sense of personal morality. And even the interpretation of, you know, lines like, I mean, I have a friend who grew up and was almost a, pre, a pastor and, you know, he was talking about, you know, it's one of those translations and I forget which, you may know if you grew up in it, uh, what is the line? It's, you know, uh, you know, saying the whole of my teaching, love thy neighbors, uh, you know, love the Lord God with all your heart, your mind, your soul. And the second part, which is the same, or depending on the translation, which is similar, um, which is love thy neighbor as yourself. And so do you take those two separate, you know, do you take these as, is every time that Jesus said um, that he was God, was he saying everything is God, this included, or was he not? And I having my Eastern thing, you know, tilt it my way but you know there are these things to say love the lord god with all your heart and soul and the second which is the same love your neighbor as you would yourself which means you have to love yourself which means you have to love your neighbor um <laughs> and which is a pretty big doctrine and uh you know it's amazing that that can get turned into somehow free market policies and gun ownership. <laughs> I don't get it. But well, that's, an, that's an entirely different interview, I think. It's um, an entirely different interview. But in, in terms of religious language, um, that is the language that we address the ineffable with. And I have never been a deist, but I've always been a bit of an ecstatic. And so I um, am drawn to those moments that, you know, gratitude or, you know, you can call it prayer if it's aimed at something. And for me, I kind of feel like I believe in um, just enough God that I can say thank you to the universe for existing. Like it's a personification and it feels so good to be in gratitude um, that it doesn't matter to me if anyone's listening. Uh, if that makes sense that, and, and as an adult and especially like post-divorced in the last years, I feel like I've developed my own spiritual language a little deeper. I had a much more academic understanding of it as a kid. Um, and as the years have gone by, I feel like I have an experiential relationship to it, but that it's still, um, kind of my own blend. It's a little esoteric. And so, uh, you know, and it, it, the interesting thing with religion is I think you get a path to um, these states of elevation and union and bliss that, that really feed the rest of your life and feed your compassion and feed your sense of wonder and awe. And people tend to think that however you got there is the only road. And maybe one of the reasons I like Buddhism or at least the westernized denatured, non-religified version of Buddhism that Westerners get, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is, says more like the path, all the paths are paths, 
You know, it's like, there's not one path. How could there be one path? There's different languages by which we address the ineffable and which we address, you know, the, there's a thing that uh, I'll go on a little more about that, but, but seeing that the human ecstatic experience, religious experience, devotional experience, um, I think is so key to humanity itself. And while there's a lot that I would find in Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or people who are, you know, these devout atheists, um, about the rational world, I think where they sometimes fall short is in truly honoring the ecstatic experience because it's in every culture in the world. Um, and once again, those stories that explain it become set in stone and then it becomes less about that experience and more about the stories built around them and the rules built around them. Um, and so religiosity can be this way of shutting off the mind, even shutting off the ecstatic experience. Um, but simply saying all of that's delusion, none of it matters. It's crazy. It's stupid. I think that's not giving proper respect to the religious experience or the, or the ecstatic or spiritual experience. Um, and that even if it's all in our heads, uh, the fact that it is there, that we have our pineal gland, that we secrete DMT, that we do all these, you know, wild things, that we get in medita meditative states, trance states, elevated states, ecstatic states. Uh, it's important enough to us that it's at the core of humanity. And that um, I think I still have a, a deep, deep fascination with that. And I still want to explore that. Um, so... It, yeah, it, it, and I have a deep respect for religious language. These are, you know, we're narrative creatures. We tell, we understand truth by telling stories. And so, um, you know, the religious stories are a part of that. Uh, and I think, once again, different practitioners, there are people who think it's the inerrant, you know, word of God and that everything that appeared in these books is absolutely factual and it all happened. And there are people who are like, no, spiritual language and, and, you know, there's a difference between spiritual truth and historical truth. And that's okay. You know, Hanuman didn't leap around the, you know, there wasn't a monkey that leapt around the world. That's cool. Uh, and there's some people who are going to say that happened. Right. <laughs> and, and most won't. Uh, most understand that the, the the language of the gods is different than the language of people, and um, it doesn't make it untrue or less valid. And so, for me, writing with these religious images is a way of exploring those sides of experience, or even you know, in in something like drive by, exploring like a child's relationship with faith and a transactional God and a God believing in a God where if you do something for God, God does something for you. And that's how the universe works. Um, you know, with that, even, even the idea of like, you know, petitionary prayer, I find a little offensive, uh, you know, asking for the thing you want. And I used to think it was just Western religions that did that. And then I remember going to Japan and going to a temple and going like, oh, wow, I'm seeing Buddhists lighting a candle and asking Buddha for what they want. That's crazy. That's so un-Buddhist, right? <laughs> Buddha is about give me the strength to accept what will come. You know, it's more like Reinhold Niebuhr and the the uh, the Serenity Prayer, right? Uh, you know, let me accept what I can't change. Let me change what I can. Give me the wisdom to know the difference, right? Paraphrased, but well, it's know. interesting because even even atheists uh, or agnostics will sometimes find God the moment their bus is going over a cliff. We're petitionary. 
and we're relational and we're often transactional in our relations. So we want to believe that a sacrifice or a petition will have an effect on the outcome. Um, but that's because that's how we relate to everything, right? One of my favorite stories, there hasn't been a song written out of it yet, but there's this uh, burial site in Peru where it was like a few hundred children's skeletons and a few hundred goat skeletons, a massive, massive sacrifice. And that it was this valley that flooded really regularly, like every year, these massive floods. And then there was about, I think it was a 150 to 300 year period where that weather cycle changed and it didn't flood. And so people moved in and they're like, this is some seriously fertile land. Oh my God, this is amazing. Let's, and it never floods. And then this city and civilization built up and then the weather pattern switched back to normal. And the people, you know, they thought they'd, been living in a paradise and they'd offended the gods and like and so they did mass sacrifices of you know the most precious thing their goats and their children right anything like think of the desperation the absolute panic and and we think the incredible insanity although we did have abraham uh but you know it's like that insanity of like sacrifice like the pure panicked desperation of a culture that would feel the need to do that and they just moved into the wrong valley at the wrong time and they didn't have a historical perspective and that that to me is a lot of human behavior like <laughs> you know we think that wherever we are and whatever's happening is normal if it's good and <laughs> and as soon as it gets rough for us and we might have to pick up and move somewhere else we think we've displeased god and that somehow sacrificing something important or petitioning is going to change things and um but yeah i mean yes we all ask and i'm sure when things go bad it's like please 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 let this happen but i kind of don't pretend that that's anything other than me asking something that doesn't exist for something i won't get well and that, and that goes to, and <laughs> I, I was and i was gonna ask about drive-by later because it, it kind of frankly follows later in the chronology of the things i was going to talk to you about but drive-by really kind of to some extent speaks to that petitionary prayer aspect of things it's that you know god if you do this for me i'll stop doing all these things that i'm told i'm not supposed to do and then he yeah. still answered the prayer and then you go and you knew i wasn't going to stop doing that stuff yeah and you still <laughs> answered the prayer because that's the kind of god you are yeah like I said, it's a, it's supposed to be a 15 year old's relationship. Yeah. But still. It's not sophisticated. In some, in, yeah. In some ways it's not, but in some way, in, 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 but in other ways it does to, I always kind of looked at it from that standpoint of, you know, if, if that is your faith, then it shouldn't be contingent. You know what I mean? So in some ways it's a 15 year old perspectives, but in other ways there's a certain maturity to it. I always thought. There is. And it depends on what you do. I mean, this is the, the trick of, you know, petitionary prayer or, I mean, I've seen it a lot in the like, you know, wellness and new age communities, you know, medicine community or, or, um, you know, Yogaville where, uh, there can be, you know, this idea like the secret, right. Or, 
you know, that if you're spiritually elevated, you'll be, it's kind of like a, a, a you, you know, wellness world version of prosperity gospel, right? If you do the right things, you'll be showered with the stuff you want. And that, uh, the, you know, the world's like this casino and you can kind of game it by, by having positive mindset. And, uh, I think that stuff's really dangerous or, or stuff, uh, again, in wellness world that it's like, it's totally true that mental state positivity rest in terms of things like pain management, right. As a person who has a severe nerve injury, it's like, I understand that mindfulness and positive mindset and presence, uh, if you're not wanting to take a bunch of drugs for your pain, like you need to develop mental skills around your pain in order to be able to stop, to be able to breathe through it, to be able to not concentrate on it so it doesn't intensify it. Like, so if you have chronic back pain, like Joe Dispenza world, there's a portion of that that I think is really helpful in terms of like, yeah, meditating is going to help you having, being calm, being in touch with your body, being able to understand that sensations change and pass through you and they're not forever mindful. It's all great, but pretending that you can meditate deeply and it will heal your bones and your spine in some magical way because of quantum entanglement uh, is, is ridiculous. And, and, you know, it's a, complete misunderstanding of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, like his idea of like, it's great. Like that stuff just makes like, as a kid of a physicist, that stuff makes my head hurt. And, uh, and so I know people who feel guilty for, uh, not being richer or not having their back healed, like feeling, oh, I didn't meditate deeply enough. And that's why my back still hurts. It's like, no, your back's messed up. Back's messed up because you like threw yourself down mountains and you played college sports. Like it's okay. It's not a spiritual failing that you have back pain. Um, it's a spiritual opportunity that you can manage it well. And, uh, but you know, saying with that, there's this idea in petitionary prayer that if you get what you want, you prayed correctly, right? You played the machine, right? And that if you don't get what you want, um, you can either stop believing in God or believe that, uh, you know, you somehow are faulty and didn't pray and aren't good enough and aren't deserving. Or that everything happens for a reason and, and, then, and, and it will come to you and that reason will come to you later. And then that third is, and saying everything happens for a reason, there are two parts to that because there's this idea that meaning is implicit, uh, is already contained content. And I think meaning is, I, I'm a little more of a nihilist with this where I'm like, I think that, that, uh, meaning is something we have the ability to add to an experience that we have the ability to reflect and improve and question. And, uh, so that, um, the meaning is available to us, but the meaning is not automatically already contained. Um, so if you don't get what you want, yeah, I mean, I, once again, as a phrase, I think everything happens for a reason is a touchy one for me because it has a reason if you decide to examine it and learn from it. It has a reason if you decide to open yourself up into it. It has a reason if it makes you vulnerable, if it makes you, uh, you know, more present and more open and not just more traumatized. Um, it doesn't necessarily have a reason because there's 
you know, watchmaker plan for you. You get to decide at any moment of your life if you're on the lesson plan or if you're just coasting, right? That's the, that to me is the lesson of mindfulness. And even the lesson, you know, embedded in Christianity, Buddhism, Judaism, and all, all the great teachings, you know, it's like in Hinduism, in Islam, like it is about showing up and being present and noticing more and asking more deeply and that you have in your disappointments as well as the things that go right. You, you always have something to learn if you decide to learn. Uh, and, you know, that's where you can control things. Um, but outcomes, you can't necessarily control. You can control some, but certainly not all. And, and it's, but, you know, once again, that idea that there's somebody writing a lesson plan, I think is, uh, it can be, useful and instructional in a metaphorical sense, but I don't, I personally don't think that's how the universe is constructed. I think we're just fringes of, you know, fringes, fringes of emergent consciousness that happen to be lucky enough to be alive. And it's a really weird miracle. I, I can't think of anything stranger than human beings, you know, uh, let's, I want to get back to some of the some of the other songs. Oh, and music! Yeah, let's get back, we'll get back to music. So, um, I want to talk about I want to talk about windmills. Uh, I mean, wow, what a beautiful song! Can Can you talk about how that song came about, and did that song generate the Dulcinea album name? I mean, from Don Quixote attacking a windmill, or was it the other way around, or neither? I'm trying to think of the order. I think we had the song Windmills first. And actually, I didn't even read it. Randy was reading it while we were on tour. Uh, so I got a cliff notes through talking to him about it. Um, and once again, it's about self-delusion and the, the you know, you know, as, as Don Quixote is, it's like uh, both the beauty and the power and the pitfalls of um telling yourself a beautiful story right um and it's that question of can you tell yourself a beautiful story um that doesn't put you or those you love in danger that doesn't make you have to be stupider or ignore reality is it an overlay that's like putting on like really beautiful glasses and all the colors pop you know and i think there are degrees, like I choose to believe that the universe uh, is an inherently loving place and that the purpose of being a human being is to love. And uh, and I don't necessarily have a ton of proof for that. I could pick and choose, I could cherry pick. Um, but I am willing to hold on to that as an irrational belief that I have faith in and that I'm just gonna stick to because it doesn't make me stupid and doesn't make me cruel. <laughs> you know, and, you know, it's not, and I, I have friends of various faiths who hold similar things where it doesn't, you know, you can go into a position of faith and use that as a way to kind of be a safety blanket where you're like, I'm not going to let in anything that doesn't agree with this. I'm not going to let anything's challenge. Uh, and, uh, you know, I see people acting hateful all the time, right? There's been two shootings in the last fucking yeah. week. People are as horrific as they are wonderful, but they are wonderful in much greater numbers and to a much greater degree. And they're all complicated 
everybody's hurting. Everybody's got a big story. Everybody's carrying a great weight and still managing to love ferociously, even if they're doing it with a ton of bizarre belief systems surrounding it uh, and things that seem protective to them, but maybe hateful to other people. And I, I hold on to that, that people are more motivated at the end of the day by love than fear, but we're ignorant, we're scared, um, and we're fighting for our survival. And so that, you know, I, then I can forgive the cruelty to a degree. Um, but it's still, yeah. So anyway, windmills for me, that's the kind of surrounding subject matter. That's the, that's what's underlying for it. And then you've got Nancy, which is kind of a seemingly an opposite song. I don't know. I don't think I know of any other songs that have a Yuri Geller reference in them. <laughs> like I said, nerds. Uh, <laughs> that song is as much as anything is on that record, actually probably the most meaningless. Uh, it was just random shit thrown together. Uh, well, we, we can, we can move on to fall down, which, which seems yeah. so drum driven, which brings me to Randy, your original drummer, Randy Gus left the band in 2020. So he isn't presently touring with you guys. Is there any hope for his return? Or is it just too challenging health wise for him at this point? It's too challenging health-wise. It's a he has a, a bone condition that just makes it really painful to be on the road, um, to be sitting, to be in the bus, um, and so it just got to the point where it was, you know, the fight between his condition and the, the fact that he'd been a touring drummer for almost thirty years, um, and most people who have OI, uh, you know, they would hit a drum and their arm would snap. I mean, he's a a warrior. And, um, and with an amazing drummer and, you know, uh, a lyrical drummer, a drummer who like, you know, literally needed to know all the words to the songs cause he was going to drum differently. Uh, he wasn't just holding the beat. He's like, what are you saying here? What is that? He needed to know the meaning under everything and, uh, a very emotionally driven more than I think a lot of drummers are. Um, then there's Todd. Um, he's he's got a crowd favorite tune or two, and and he's a superb guitar player as well. But he's also a, a fantastic guitar maker. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's been making guitars for the last few years. He he's he's a kind of a perfectionist, and so uh, he was like, none of my guitars will stay in tune. I'm gonna make one, <laughs> and so I think he started doing it just because, like, he wanted a he wanted if there was a problem with the guitar rather than he wanted to know where the buck stopped and he wanted the buck to stop with him. And so he was trying to just see if he could make guitars that were good enough for him to want to play. Cause he's like, he's really like, he wants perfect intonation. He want like, you know, he's um, so set on that. And so kind of set him down that path. And so and he's got a great aesthetic eye as well. So he, yeah, he's been making really awesome guitars. And we talked about Dean earlier and and you know and and he's he's a very tight bass player and i don't think he he gets enough recognition in my eyes um but it, it's interesting because you know it says a lot that here we are 30 plus years later and all you high school buddies are still making music together and i know you all took a break for a bit and i even caught a few solo shows of yours during that time i i saw i, I saw you once in tallahassee uh, at long island um, when the band finally got back together, 
was it easy or hard? Were you able to just get right back on the horse? Was it like old times immediately or, or was there a little bit of distance that needed to be bridged? Well, uh, I mean, both. It was unfortunately kind of like old times, but with all the bad parts too. Oh, geez. Uh, so, I mean, at first we had a lot to burn through. I mean, we got together really young and, um, you know, I was probably, you know, friend closest to Randy in the band, like didn't hang out a lot. We don't have a ton in common except for this kind of familial bond through the band. It's not like we're, you know, calling each other up and going out for dinner. And so, um, we're really different people. And there was a lot in the band that had been hurtful and that we needed to get through and get over. And we also have really different styles as far as conflict management, psychological language, any of that. And so, um, you know, I think as we get older, there's just a point of acceptance of going like everybody is who they are and wanting them to change isn't going to change them. So putting energy into, and I think we've all done this, like just accepting we are who we are and, and that we get a lot of time often to do other things. And so whatever ways we don't meet each other, um, you know, I love being in situations that are more uh, improvisational and surprising. And Toad is very, very set. Uh, we do what we do and it sounds the way it sounds and it's like it is what it is and it sounds really good and our audience loves it and I know how to show up and respect the audience but if I want things to be more unpredictable I need to go somewhere else it's not what Toad does and having time to kind of do my solo work where you know I don't have a set list and you never know where it's going to go and stories come and go and you know or the work I've done with like Sean and Sarah from Nickel Creek or other you know or playing with Jonathan Kingham live it's like there's a lot more surprise and improvisation and and uh I really need that and Toad just is not that <laughs> and so it's partially just going okay it's not that and let it be what it is enjoy it for what it is and uh, don't force anybody to be what they aren't, you know? Um, and I think that's been a winning strategy. Uh, and, um, you know, but we've, we've all hurt each other a lot and we've also been there for each other a lot. Like I said, it's familial. Um, <clears throat> and so, uh, it, you know, it offers, a lot of opportunities, both in, you know, the familiarity of each other and the comfort of being together and in the challenges of being together. And it's taught me a lot. You mentioned good intentions earlier. How did that end up on the Friends soundtrack? I, I guess you had written, you guys had written it first or was it something? Yeah, we'd written and recorded it and mixed it for the Fear album. And it was just sitting around and you know, we were on tour and we got a call and they said, Hey, the friends soundtrack wants a song. And we're like, how about good intentions? Like, okay. So, and there it was, um, yeah. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of the movie stuff in those days, you know, you'd record, you'd have extra tracks after a record and then Sony would be doing a soundtrack and, uh, and there it would be. And that's where the B sides went. Yeah. Although, although with one of those days, which you guys did for the movie Animal Crackers, that one you actually wrote for the movie, right? 
Yeah. He he was cold calling bands. He he put that to that movie together like kind of amazingly. Like for the budget they did it for and the resources they had and he was just like I'm calling all the bands I want on the soundtrack. We don't have a big budget. Don't know if we'll get distributed, but I'm going to make this damn movie no matter what. And so it's like, okay. I want to go back in time for a minute because we kind of skipped over Coil. Um, and, and although, like I mentioned, Dulcinea is certainly my personal favorite, Coil was incredible as well. And and I think it was your highest charting album. Was What was the feeling within yourself and the band going into the studio for that record? I mean, we were excited. We felt like we were a strong band. We had a ton of songs going in. Um, there was a bit of division in the band at that point, but also uh, we wanted to make a great album. And we went against the head of the company. He wanted us to work with, uh, oh, who was it? Who did like Crash, Jerry Harrison. Everybody was, you know, live and crashed as dummies and they were having hits with him. And they're like, you got to work with Jerry Harrison. And we're like, we're going to work with Gavin because <laughs> uh, he's our guy. And, uh, and we were actually told by the head of the company, it's like, okay, you work with him, but your record's going to stop as soon as we're recouped. Uh, I will end your record. And they did precisely that actually. Uh, like, we put out the record, it charted quickly, we had a single, and then they're like, that's it. We broke even, you're done. Uh, and that hurt. <laughs> um, and, it, you know, once again, it's not sour grapes if they tell you they're going to do it before they do it. Yeah. And they told us they were going to do it. And, like, literally, that was the punishment for working with Gavin. They pulled the plug as soon as they made their money back. Uh, so that was disappointing. <laughs> and and in the course of that record, too, I think there was stuff as far as work and credit, uh, you know, um, where stuff was coming to a head in the band uh, that I think we should have had. I think because success came easily to us and unexpectedly to us, and without us having to, you know, having to work and fight for it as a unit so hard, uh, we took a lot for granted and assumed as individuals we could just keep going if we weren't in the band. And we tried to make another record and it was just impossible. Uh, it was too much infighting, too many hurt feelings. Uh, and I really wish we'd been forced to go into like mediation and or therapy as a group and something to work it out. And, go and, and just even take a break because, uh, because yeah. you guys actually broke up, but in some cases just taking a hiatus for a certain amount of time. Probably should have took a hiatus in, in retrospect. It was uh, kind of a stupid thing to do to break up, but uh, we were done. There was no joy. We were trying to make a record and it was just impossible. But then, then the Counting Crows, they were, uh, Adam was what instrumental in helping you guys kind of get back together. Yeah. Yeah. They asked us to reform and open for them. And we tried it. And frankly, the first time we got together, I think we, we all finished those shows and we're like, I never want to do this again. And so, mm. <laughs> two more years, uh, you know, there were a lot of hurt feelings, like really deeply hurt feelings. Mm. And, you know, it's the thing with familial stuff at some point, 
you know, and uh, I learned a big lesson, which is don't apologize for stuff expecting an apology and reaction. Uh, and there's stuff that will never be apologized for. And there's stuff that will never be acknowledged and having to go like, you know, that's, that's just how it is. And I can either live, you know, forgiveness isn't something somebody gives you. It's something you give yourself. It's something you give to other people and it has to be unconditional. And, um, it can be incredibly difficult. And, uh, I know with Toad, the, the only reason it can continue is a sense of forgiveness where it's like, I can work myself up into states of mind where I want apologies for things or, you know, or I feel indignant. And then I got to go like, you know, it's just, it's not worth it. You know, there's, it's interesting, like, cause there's stuff that if you're trying to move forward in certain ways, if you don't bring certain stuff up, it's going to come and bite you on the ass, right? Uh, in terms of resentments. And there's other stuff where you got to forgive and move forward, even if you don't forget. And you have to let it go because it's not going to, you know, I think we get to those places with our parents, right? Uh, where it's like, there's not enough time anymore to talk about the disappointments or the hurts or the things that could have been better. It's like they did the best they could. And at some, some point, you just accept and love. Especially after you have your own kids and make the same mistakes and you go like, yeah, your only job is to accept and love. And the, if you try to get into the old wounds, you're just going to open them. <laughs> you're not going to heal them. Yeah. And, and, and the, like, that's a good realization. You know, and, and there's an intelligence in that. There's stuff that needs to be worked on, right? Like, you know, in your closest relationships, you're active, your marriage, there's this. There's a degree of if you hide things away, you're going to go dead in ways you don't want to go dead. But um, I also think in a working environment, creative partnerships, whatever, it's like there's a point at which you got to let the past be the past and move on. And I think... I think there it feels different because at this point we've kind of done that and we're not hurting each other in the old ways we used to hurt each other. And you got to judge people by who they are now and not how they used to hurt you. It's a losing game. Now, you mentioned earlier about the, the difference with, you know, spontaneity, uh, you know, with your solo work and, and, and your solo sound is different clearly than your toad sound. Um, and, and and so does the idea of, for example, your, your sofa shows, which you, you started, I think, doing much more of since the pandemic. And I know you used to do the stage at shows, and then I've caught at least a dozen to a dozen or two of these sofa shows from, you know, on Facebook Live since the pandemic that you've been doing since home. Yeah, yeah I've done uh, 200 something. <laughs> yes. And, and, and there's yeah. and, and I can tell you towards the beginning, I mean, I caught a lot of them. Um, does that give you that opportunity to have that spontaneity that you want where there's just, I mean, I know you take requests on these things where you just pick and choose and, and you can do some of that. Um, I guess, first of all, what made you decide to do the sofa shows? Well, I kind of thought we'd be shut down for three months, right? <laughs> so when I started doing them, I was doing We all did. I know. I mean, I started doing the sofa shows years ago because I yeah. ran into Evan Lowenstein who started Stage It and he was like, you got to try this out. And I'm like, oh, cool. I can be home and play a show and make tips and that's awesome. Uh, 
and then in the time since stage it started uh you know there's facebook live youtube live, you know everybody has streaming uh <clears throat> and so when the pandemic started it's like huh well i'll be home i'll upgrade my you know internet speed and i'll justify that by doing some live streaming and so i was doing a stage it on sundays and i started by doing five live streams a week yeah <laughs> i did that for like two or three weeks and then i went to three and i also do community choir leading in town and i switched that to online where i use a looper and like loop up the parts and people would sing along from home on zoom uh and so i was doing five shows a week for pretty much a year and a half and a lot of those were for charity right yeah so all the the three a week that were like facebook live and then later youtube and everything else when i started doing the live streams it's like oh there's this little button where you, you can make it for a charity and so i started doing um it was a lot of food banks uh you know a, a wide variety of of causes um and I, I've stopped, like, the amount of time it actually took me. Once again, it was lockdown, so I had time. I was, you know, vetting the nonprofit, making sure they had a donation button that was legit, like, making the graphic for it, getting I did it all myself. And so, um, you know, it was a really constant process of trying to figure out what the relevant nonprofits were and, you know, losing audience as time went on uh, by being willing to take a stand on, you know, uh, after George Floyd, uh, you know, the various, uh, you know, societal ups and downs. And so, um, you know, that, that was a painful and interesting part of the year too, was, um, just seeing how deep the division is and how, um, how committed some people are to, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, what, exactly um <laughs> it's it, it's so it's it you know it was it was both heartening and disheartening and, and the thing is in the comments there there came out of that to be a real community that have now come to shows in real life they have dinner together there have been a couple there's one couple in england and one couple in the states a uh, couple getting married uh, that met in the chats of those uh those shows and so really beautiful community i mean they made me a birthday like a yearbook of you know their stories and where they're from and so uh they really showed up for each other and and so that part of it i'm incredibly proud of that we well you know every person i've for each other every person i've turned on to those uh, facebook live shows has thanked me for it. um um are, are you still going i know it takes a ton of time and then you guys have a tour coming up um are you going to still be able to do some of them or is that something you'll, you'll get back to yeah, it? I'm doing one tonight. Uh, I haven't done as many, uh, since I've been home, I've been finishing a solo album and getting ready for tour and just living life and going out in the evening. And yeah, you know, we have a dog and doing things. Um, so can you tell people I, how they can find the shows when they're on? Um, I mean, it, it They'll get announced on my page. It's Glenn Phillips Music on Facebook. Uh, I usually announce them on Toad's page too on Facebook. Uh, same with the our YouTube pages. Uh, same with my Twitter page. So it goes to I, I multicast it, and so it goes out everywhere at once. Uh, and yeah, that, once again, they've been. Um, 
it's been a really good experience and and to to go about setting those shows up in a way that I'm trying to think how to describe it what I ended up really loving about it I mean and it ended up getting me through the year financially as well just on tips um and I liked that I could create a community that was based first and foremost in generosity to the charities and to each other and then also in this era where everything is transactional transactional and commodified is to not set a price on it and to not have a paywall to make it available to everybody and be really clear like if you can't afford to pay you know don't don't give me anything if you have a lot and you understand I'm a musician and I'm not on tour uh then throw me something if you want and people were like really shockingly generous and still are and in an era where music is so roundly devalued uh seeing the actual value it had for people and that connection and you know even the ability to just watch me go through my good days and my bad days and the days where i was rallying and full of hope and full of love and the days where i was utterly collapsed and depressed and you know losing my faith in humanity um <clears throat> you know that they got to see me in real time go through all that as well and so um it provided you know this substrate i think for this community to grow in and i liked that i was able to do that without having to put um a price tag or a you know I don't know, star, you know, all these things they want you to do to monetize or running ads or any of that and just kind of use it as a neutral platform and let people do what they felt good about. And that, that, that I felt like was a good experience. Um, and, and you play a lot of your songs, Toad songs and covers on these shows. What song, and it doesn't necessarily have to do with these shows. I'm just curious myself personally, what song, whether it be yours or someone else's, gives you, Glenn, the absolute most joy to either listen to or play? Oh. Uh, I define joy differently than most people. <laughs> uh, I like, Tara Brock, has a, uh, she's a Buddhist teacher, has this definition of joy, which is the, it's the combination of loving, loving kindness and compassion. Loving kindness being the style of love, which is being drawn to the warmth and goodness in people compassion is what happens when you see others suffer the part in you that loves them right and that joy is the ability to simultaneously hold loving kindness and compassion so it's the expansiveness of holding all the happiness of the world in its sweetness and holding the the deep well that is required to hold suffering and grief right and so for me that's joy so <laughs> the answer to that song is uh, it's still for me right now there's a song called no hard feelings by uh the avid brothers that is just a perfect song uh and it's a just one of those i wonder what happens when i die songs but um just lines like you know when the sun hangs low in the west and the light in my chest won't be kept held at bay any longer right it's even this idea of death is just getting to be too big for your body and uh having to expand into something else and it's just i mean and who knows what's on the other side but it's uh such a beautiful song um so yeah i like that one 
Um, let's talk current projects. Uh, please tell everyone about your latest album and your upcoming tour. Yeah, well, uh, Toad put out a record called Starting Now last fall. Um, and we're touring starting uh, like May 27th is I think our first date. And then we're out for eight weeks with Bare Naked Ladies and Jim Blossoms uh, touring the United States. And uh, so heading out on that. Uh, and we're going to do two more weeks with Toads in uh, late September, early October. I'll have a record coming out on Compass Records uh, probably in October. I believe the title this week is called There Is So Much Here. Uh, and it's uh, I'm excited about the record. It's a bigger record than I've done for a while as a solo record. I tend to, on my solo records, make them because I can't afford to tour with a band. Uh, I, I tend, I've tended to make these smaller folkier records. And this time I just went in and was like, like, fuck it. I want to make something fun. And so it's, it's a sprawling record. And, uh, so yeah, I'm excited for that record to come out and then I'll be touring in November for that. And probably in the new year as well. Uh, where can our audience go to follow you and the band on, on social media and elsewhere? Uh, Facebook slash Toe the West Brocket or Glenn Phillips Music. Uh, and I'm on Instagram as Glenn Phillips Music and I think also on Twitter. And yeah, just Google it. It's all there. <laughs> thank you so much, Glenn. Follow, smash, all those things. <laughs> Glenn, thank you so much for being on the show. I mean, this has been an absolute, to use your, your the, the word earlier, joy for me. Um, ladies and gentlemen, Glenn Phillips of Toe the West Brocket. Thanks. Take care.